when when you do when you do a program like this, it uh, it's it stretches the the person that's in conversation with folks about uh, who are the right people to come and how do you find them and and some of them we can identify uh, between us uh, uh, those of us that were working with this uh, preparing for this but when it came for tonight uh, I thought the the best way to do it is to talk to somebody who works closely with physicians and could have a really uh, a very excellent uh, suggestion of a person that could uh, be here to lead us in this conversation tonight. Um, and so in a minute, I'm going to turn the microphone over to, to Gary, who was that person. Gary is a uh, uh, recently retired CEO of uh, Southwest Memorial Hospital, Southwest Herman Memorial Hospital. and. Uh, and so this is the connection that we had for, for Dr. Leach. Um, I do want to remind you that these books are yours. There are several of you who are, are new tonight. So uh, Dan, let me borrow your book here just a second. Uh, you, you notice that, that, that the, the page that fits in the sleeve on the front uh, gives it says important information for my family. We we designed this book and received the information for this book as something that uh, when that important time comes and and children are looking for where's my starting point and they read that then they'll open it and uh, that's what it's there for is is a, is a gift of love for you and for your family. Uh, going forward, and uh, you'll notice that the, there are um, uh, dividers in the back, so that there's one for each night. You got a, a, a handout for tonight that you could put in the second section, um, and then then you may also want to add other things to it, like uh, the night the lawyer comes. You may want to put your will in that section, so that think about what it is you want to leave uh, for your family. So, and we, we had one for each person. They're not one per couple, but one for each person because each person has their own information about themselves and so on and so forth. Um, now I'm going to uh, ask Gary to come up uh, and he'll share a word of, of introduction about Dr. Leach and, and we're just, uh, we're delighted to have you with us tonight. For those that don't know me, I'm Gary Kerr, and I've been in hospitals management for 35 years, and I retired about four months ago. And I've known Dr. Leach back when I was the CEO at Northwest Hospital, now called the Heights Hospital, and at Southwest Hospital. And palliative care and hospice care has been particularly important to me because 35 years in healthcare, you would think that I would know a bit about all of this, but I really had a difference between what happened with my father and his passing and what happened with my mother and her passing. Um, my father spent 100 days in the hospital. We didn't talk about anything. My mother said, it's the boys. Y'all need to make the decision. We made no decision, and my father just finally passed away. With my mother, we spent two weeks at her foot of her bed together, her three sons. She was in hospice care. We had one of the most important experiences of my life as we were able to spend time, quality time with my mom at the end of her life. And we knew this and we planned it. And a lot of this I learned from Dr. Leach. She, I talked her into coming over to South, from Southwest Hospital over to Northwest Hospital and became our uh, hospice and palliative care director part-time. And then when I came back to uh, over to Southwest, she was over the palliative care program uh, at Southwest and she was running the hospice. She was medical director for the hospice program for Memorial Hermann. We have a hospice or, uh, over off of uh, the Beltway in I-10 and uh, 
But then Anna left, and she went to UT, uh, back to UT. She's uh, a graduate of UT. And then she did her fellowship at MD Anderson. And then she's back to UT as an assistant professor at the UT McGovern School. Right, they just changed the name because somebody donated a lot of money. Yeah, if you donate <laughs> a lot of money, they'll change the name. More importantly with Anna, I think I've had a great relationship. We have spent a lot of time talking about individual patients and families and issues. And um, she was also one of our physician leaders at the hospital. So she's very bright and I was very lucky. So when Richard called me and said, do you have any recommendation? It was an easy for me to see if I could talk Anna into coming. So with that, Anna Leach, Dr. Leach. So I think I have one of this, do Bob. I don't know what I'm going to do with my hands. I'm used to holding something and this is so fancy and stuff. So let's see. And I think it's vibrating. So he didn't really have to talk me into this. I do this as much as I can because I think it's the right thing to do. And if I can get amazing 100, 120 people in a room and tell them what I think about this stuff, I, th I think it's just amazing. So um, th there was not a lot of convincing that needed to happen. So thank you for being here. Um, if we can start, see, I don't have a clicker. I can't see. Okay, so I'm used to doing presentations for like academic settings, and so I have like my objectives. But basically, I just want to go over things like what does end of life look like when you're in the hospital versus when you're in hospice, and what do the services mean, and when do you make these decisions, and just the, the kind of information that is good to have before you need it. You never want to get car insurance after the accident. You want to have the car insurance before the accident so that it's actually useful. This information you want before you need it so that you can make decisions that are not fraught with emotional distress and doubt because you don't know what's going on. So I would like to go forward, although I can't read any of those. So I'm still going to have to do this thing. Uh, so why do we need to talk about this? Because it's important. You know, all, there's a lot of stuff that's uncomfortable in life. Talking with the teenagers about the birds and the bees is really uncomfortable. And talking about taxes is really uncomfortable. And talking about debt is really uncomfortable. But if we don't do it, we end up in much worse situations than if we had talked about it. So talking about end of life and medical decisions and what do you want, it is really, really uncomfortable. But we really have to do it. And it's better when we do it when we're not distressed. Um, so if you can't read the quote, it says, uh, there are things we don't want to happen, but we have to accept. Things we don't want to know, but we have to learn. And people we can't live without, but we have to let go. Um, we just have to carry them with us forever in our heart. We change the slide. Okay, so our worst case scenarios. We, we're in the hospital, grandma's 92. The grandchildren say, oh, we don't know what grandma would want. We would have never talked about this. It's, it's too uncomfortable. It's, uh, you know, we, don't, we don't want to talk about things like that. Or we say things like, oh, well, I'm, he loves life. I'm sure he would want to live. I'm, I'm sure that whatever it takes, so long as his heart's beating, this is what dad would want. Um, or we have no idea who's supposed to make decisions. You know, there are 16 kids from three different marriages, and nobody knows who's supposed to make decisions. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> we would much rather hear, oh, she has a living will, this like on this paper, this binder we got from church and we know exactly what she wants and we're just going to do what she said that we should do. Or, you know, we, we talked about it. We know that dad would want to live as long as possible. And, and it's okay if that's your wish. If you want us to provide artificial support for as long as possible, and that's what you want. That's okay. We just hate doing it when people don't want that, and we're just doing it because the kids don't know what you want. Um, or, you know, we, we have a designated medical power attorney. It's right here. We spoke. We know that this is a person who's supposed to make decisions. We would much rather hear that because then we know that we're making decisions based on what the person wanted and that you thought about it and that you know what things are going to look like. So thank you for being here, <laughs> if I can't say that enough. Um, 
I always tell people when they're when they're looking at this paperwork, when they're looking at this advanced directives, they're not very clear. And when you get your when the attorney comes, you'll get this form that says, if I have a terminal illness, this is what I want. And if I have a a, a reversible condition, this is what I want. But the thing that you really need to think about is what brings meaning to your life every day? Is it playing golf or is it living independently or is it being able to travel? And you need to frame your advanced directives based on that. Will I still be able to do this thing that brings meaning to my life? And if the answer is yes, then the treatment makes sense. And if the answer is no, then you really need to think about whether you want those treatments or not. Um, I know I, I kind of dealt with this with Gary, but when sort of in the last year, my dad got sick and he died, and he always said, driving is the thing that brings me joy. He would do this crazy thing where he would like drive to San Antonio for lunch on Saturday and drive back. It's like, <laughs> why? The weather was nice. Okay. When he got sick and he couldn't drive anymore, we knew we were done. It was game over. It didn't really matter what they could do. There was no biopsies that we could do or treatments that we could do because he wasn't going to be able to drive again. So think about what, what brings you that, that joy and that meaning to your personal life when you figure out what treatments you want done and what you don't want done. Um, so that's what the ICU looks like. <laughs> and when people say, I want everything done, the doctors don't specifically say, well, do you mean everything that makes sense? Do you mean everything that we can do? Do you mean everything that's possible that your insurance will pay exactly what that means because everything could potentially be a lot of things you don't want everything could be machines that keep you breathing machines that keep your heart beating machines that literally take your blood out of your body filter it this is not beyond dialysis but filter your blood put oxygen in your blood and put it back in your body you're unresponsive you're sedated you're trapped in a bed with that mess behind you. I like to call that spaghetti bowl sign because all those lines get tangled and it just, it looks like a spaghetti bowl of stuff on top of your bed. That's what everything means. And sometimes that's not so cool. That's really cool if you're going to get better, but not, not so cool if that's going to be the best we can do. So it's good to choose, get rid of this whole everything thing because it's, it's not, it, it doesn't communicate what you want and the doctors just take it on the complete other side and they literally do all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so um, a lot of people worry, well, well, if I tell them I don't want them to bring me back, they're just not going to take care of me. I'm going to be in the corner and they're not going to give me medicine and they're just going to let me die. And what, really, what DNR means when you're in the hospital and they ask you about this code status, do you want us to bring you back do you, if your heart stops? What do you want us to do? It really means let us do everything we can to keep you healthy. Let us give you whatever medicines we can give you. Let us give you whatever treatments we can give you. But if we fail, if your body still does not respond to our treatments and your heart stops and you die, should we attempt CPR? Should we press on your chest and do all these things? Or should we allow you to die peacefully at that point? When you elect to be DNR in the hospital, all you are choosing is allow me to die peacefully if all your stuff, all your toys, all your treatments, all your medicines don't work. You still get all the other medications and treatments available in the hospital. And if you ever have a loved one in the hospital who is wanting treatment and they've said their DNR and you feel that the staff is not giving them appropriate service, you call somebody else from the hospital, you request that the medical officers come or you request that somebody like Gary come and you complain to them because the nurses are not doing what they need to do. There's a lot of misconceptions because of what people did back in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, but that's not the way it is. You, you still get all the treatments you want until your heart stops and you die of natural causes despite our efforts. And in reality, if your heart stops at that point and we try to 
restart your heart, which is basically a pump, so you, we can and I press on it and we can get the pump to jump start it again and get it to work again, you are going to be sicker afterwards than you were before. So if you were already so sick that your heart stopped and we can get your heart restarted, now you still have all the medical problems you had before and your heart has stopped. <laughs> so now you have more medical problems. And so now we're in a worse place. Um, it's helpful if you're really young and otherwise healthy, not so helpful otherwise. Um, so that's what life support should be, right? We're on Mars, there is oxygen. If life support fails, people you know, don't do well and you're on a spaceship, not so good. But if you're in the hospital, <laughs> we take it a step beyond. It's not just oxygen and temperature regulation, it's a lot of other things. So I like to throw a lot of analogies because I think those help. And I think of life support as a bridge that's supposed to get you to a better place. And so when you are on in Florida and you go all the way down to Miami and you keep going on that road, you're on this long bridge that gets you all the way to Key West. And that's a bridge that gets you to a better place. But sometimes when there is no, nothing at the end of the bridge or where you get stuck in the middle of the bridge and now you're living under the bridge, not so good anymore. Most people don't want to live under the bridge, at least the ones near my house who live under the bridge, they don't look very happy. They don't look like that's what people want. And so when you get stuck in a setting when you're on life support for a long time, that bridge to a better place is now where you're living and it's not so good. Um, things we can do, uh, breathing machines. So you will hear the doctors or the nurses say, well, he's on, he's on a breathing machine and they don't tell you he's on life support, they just say he's on a breathing machine. A breathing machine, also called a ventilator, is a tube they put in your throat, through your mouth, into your lungs, and it's used to force air into your lungs. So basically, you're so weak, so frail, can't breathe on your own. We really can't breathe for you, per se, but we can force air into your lungs and force the oxygen to exchange in your lungs. It's okay for a few days if you get better. If you don't get better after a few days, the risk of infection from the tube that goes from your mouth to your lungs that are supposed to be a sterile place, it's a little path for bacteria to find their way to your lungs. So after a few days, the risk of infection starts going up. And we start saying, if we're going to have to do this much longer, we need to now do surgery and put a tracheostomy. So now you have a tube in your throat instead of in your mouth, but you're still on life support. You're still having this machine force air in your lungs. You still can't talk, you still can't eat because now you have this thing in your neck. Um, and it may be okay for some people and it may be consistent with your wishes and depending on what's going on, that may be the best thing you can do, but it's a big deal. Um, people don't think of dialysis as life support, but I like to uh, consider it life support because that's what it is. We're replacing your kidneys. Your kidneys don't work, so we're going to do dialysis, which is basically replacing the function that your kidneys do. Um, this external kidney. So we take blood out of you, we filter it, we get rid of stuff, we make urine in a machine out here, we put the blood back in. It's okay. It's hard because you have to do this three times a week and you have to go sit in some dialysis center and it can really hamper your ability to go on a cruise because they don't have dialysis on cruises. Although that would be a great idea if somebody has the financial interest <laughs> to do that. But it's, you, are, you are getting artificial support. Um, feeding tubes. Everybody says, well, but, but grandma is not eating and she's going to starve to death and so we need to put a feeding tube in. So we can do a couple of things. We can put a tube in your nose, goes into your stomach so that we can basically put a milkshake in your stomach, ensure or whatever. But again, like the tube in your mouth that helps you breathe, this tube in your nose to give you nutrition. You can't be there for a long time. It causes infections and sores in the back of your throat. And so after a while, we say, you know, this is she's going to need this for a while. Why don't we do surgery and put the tube straight into her stomach and we can just give her her nutrition that way. So now she can't taste her food and she can't eat, but we're still giving her nutrition. But she can't tell us she's full and she can't tell us she has indigestion, and, but we're still going to feed her because the nutritionist said give her six cans every day. And so we're gonna do this. And so she might be uncomfortable, but, but she's okay because we're, we're feeding her. Unfortunately, when we are very sick and when we're dying, our guts don't work anymore. 
And so the reason grandma wasn't eating is not because we're starving her to death, but because her body's shutting down. And when her body starts to shut down, her intestines don't work, and she can't process food, and so she's going to want to eat a lot less. And that's okay, because starvation, by definition, is I'm hungry and there's no food. So if you're in Somalia, you're starving. There's no food. Unfortunately, right now, some people in Puerto Rico are starving. There is no food. They can't get, we can't get to them. So that's starvation. Going without eating because your body is shutting down because you're not hungry, that's not starvation. When you have the flu, you're not starving and you just don't eat for three days because your body has better things to do. After three days, when you have gotten better, then you're really hungry and you go and you raid the fridge and you eat what you should have eaten for three days <laughs> and all the wonderful weight you lost because you were sick comes right back on because <laughs> you just make up for it. The problem is, is when you are dying, you're not going to get back better in three days because your body is shutting down because this is a natural process. And so putting in a tube that artificially forces nutrition in you potentially causes more distress and it doesn't actually fix what's going on. Sometimes, again, it makes sense. If you are actively getting cancer treatment, then you're just not very hungry because of the cancer treatment. And it's temporary, that makes sense. If you have a teenager with some emotional issues and so they've de now developed anorexia and they're not eating and you can potentially get them better and give them therapy, but you need to get calories in them so they can get better, it makes sense to do that. But when you're very sick and the medical condition has progressed to the point where we can't fix things anymore, it doesn't make sense to put a tube in that is going to cause more harm than good. Um, so heart assist devices. So the heart is a pump, just like you know car pumps, and it just kind of gets blood from one side to the other. And it normally works relatively well, but as we age or if there has been injury to it from heart attacks and things like that, it doesn't work as well. And things get backed up. And so that's why people with heart failure will get swelling in their legs and they get fluid in their lungs because they just have pump failure. The pump is just not working. And sometimes we can put things that help the pump work better. The, we can put pacemakers in to make it work rhythmically more better. We can, I mean, more better. Okay, better, period, <laughs> no more. <laughs> it, we can um, put defibrillators, so sometimes the heart that's normally supposed to beat and pump, get blood in and pump it out, gets the, the fibers don't work quite right, and so it starts doing this thing where it's just kind of, call it fibrillation, where it's just kind of dancing around, but it's not pumping blood. The defibrillator will shock it back into rhythm, and it goes, okay, fine, I'll do it this way, because you want me to do it this way. And it's better, you, you get the blood flow that you're supposed to have. Sometimes we now have pumps we can insert into your abdomen that can help the pump work even better. So it's like a backup pump. So that whatever your heart doesn't pump, it can help it pump better. And those come with a lot of sacrifices. Like you can't ever submerge yourself in water and you have to have someone with you. And, and that's okay because it, they'll buy you some time, but we're not fixing the pump. We're just putting a secondary pump. And so what it does is it buys you time somewhere from one to five more years, but it doesn't fix the actual problem. And so depending on what's going on in your life and what's important to you, you might decide that you don't want those things. Uh, we can also do heart bypass machines, so heart-lung bypass. We do this in the OR when somebody has heart surgery. We take your blood, we shunt it out, we do the work of your heart and your lungs, and we put it back in. For surgery, it's about an hour, we put things back together, you get better, all fine and good. Sometimes we do this for days at a time when your lungs have failed and your heart has failed. And maybe you'll get better and that's great and a few people do, but maybe you won't get better. And so it's important to know, do I want all these things? And we have all these wonderful toys and things in our medical supply stores, but sometimes they make sense, sometimes they don't. Um, in my wonderful world of analogies, I like to say it's like having a greatly stocked shop in your garage. This is awesome. You can do woodworking, you can do car work. It's, it's great. But when you try to get the circular saw to hammer in a nail, you're going to have a problem. And so sometimes you have to really think about which tools you're using and how to use them. Next. Okay, so... Um, 
think about those things and which, which ones you would want. But uh, we get a lot of those questions. Well, isn't palliative care just hospice? And isn't hospice just going to put me in the corner, close the door, wait for me to die, come back and check on me once a week, and they're not going to give me any treatment? And that couldn't be further from the truth. Palliative care is generally a bridge, sometimes to hospice, but sometimes not. Um, we take care of very sick patients. Every single patient I see on a regular basis is, is very sick. They have advanced cancer, or they have advanced heart failure, or they have advanced lung failure. There's something going on, they're very, very sick. But they're still getting treatment. Maybe they're still getting chemo. Maybe there is a surgery that can help them get better. Maybe they want one of those pumps that can give them a few more years but they're nauseous sometimes, and they're short of breath sometimes, and they're in pain sometimes. And my job is to help them feel as good as possible so that they can continue those treatments that are helping them achieve the goals that they want for themselves. Um, sometimes it's a specific date that they're hoping to get to a child's wedding or they're hoping to get to a graduation. And sometimes they just want to hang out and they're doing okay and they can tolerate the sacrifices from the treatment and so they're okay with it. But we're there to make sure that their symptoms are controlled. Um, you can go back to the hospital when you're on palliative care. You can, you can take all, you take all your medications like normally. I'm just the extra person. You have a cardiologist, and you have the pulmonologist, and you have the reno, the, the, the kidney doctor, and you have the palliative doctor. And you see all these people, and we help you do as well as possible. Um, but I only really take care of really sick people. Generally speaking, Medicare will pay me, or whatever insurance you have will pay me, just like they pay all the other folks. So if you have a copay, you have a copay. If you don't, you don't. Um, and usually, although I, we try to send out sympathy cards and kind of reach out to people, generally speaking, there is no mandate. If, if we don't do it, we don't do it. If we do it, we're just nice. Hospice, on the other hand, is specifically for people who are dying. People who we think, from our great experience of guesswork that we do in medicine every day, have six months or so left to live. It, it, less than that is okay, more than that, generally Medicare says no, they have, it needs to be six months. But if we're wrong, and you're a hospice for six months, at the end of six months, nobody says, well, you already burnt your six months, so you're done. <laughs> we say, oh, you, you can continue to be on hospice for as long as you are we think that you might die in the next six months, and some people are in hospice for a couple of years, and some people are in hospice for a couple of weeks. The difference is that the longer you are in hospice, the more you benefit from the services they provide. They have nurses and chaplains, social workers, and doctors who are interested in your symptoms and your quality of life. So in hospice, you're not homebound. You can come and go as you please. So it's not uncommon for people to say, well, I'm on hospice, but I'm going to be visiting my uh, son in Colorado for the next two weeks. So can you just give me medicines for the next two weeks because I'm going to be in Colorado. And that's fine. You can go to Colorado, and you can go on a cruise, and you can do whatever you have the energy to do. And so if you're coming to the end of your life and you're on hospice, you're not going to be homebound. You're not going to only get medications that are going to sedate you. They're, what they want you to do is they want you to live, and they want you to be comfortable so that you can live as fully as possibly for as long as nature allows you to. Um, generally speaking, on hospice, you don't go back to the hospital, so your, your decision is, I only have about six months or so left to live. I would like to travel during that time or enjoy time with my grandkids or just sit on my back porch and enjoy my beautiful garden. And when something happens, the nurses from hospice will come to my house. They will make sure I'm comfortable. The doctor from hospice will be in touch and they will manage things. But I don't want to go back to the hospital. I don't want to sit in that room getting that horrible food for the next three days. I don't want them to not let me eat the ice cream that I really like to eat, even though I have diabetes and I don't care because I'm, I'm on hospice and I like ice cream and I'm going to have ice cream every day with every meal because I, I, I'm working on, on my exit strategy and I should have ice cream. <laughs> and you should. <laughs> um, Medicare generally pays for hospice at 100%. And so if, if, if you just have Medicare type A, which is it's a Medicare A beneficiary thing, there's no co-pays involved in hospice. 
What, med what Medicare does not pay on hospice is your room and board. So if you live in a nursing home on hospice, you still have to pay for the room and board. If you live at home on hospice, the nurses will come a few times a week to check in on you, but your family is really providing the care or having a caregiver or, or somebody else. Medicare does not pay for the, the sort of day-to-day -day room and board. Medicaid will, but you have to be absolutely broke, destitute, and people always say, well, they're gonna take my house. Well, no, not really. They want you to use your house to pay for your care, which is what the kind of plan was. Your house was supposed to be your biggest savings to pay for your care, not your biggest savings to inherit your kids more money while the taxpayers pay for your care. So that's really what they want. They want you to just use your savings. It's harsh because, you know, we all think, well, Medicare will take care of me when I'm 65. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> they will provide you medical care and hospitalizations and things like that. Um, they will give you the medications that make sense for you. Uh, generally speaking, but blood cholesterol medicines don't really make sense for somebody who's going to die in the next six months. But thyroid medicine makes a lot of sense because if you don't take it, you don't feel good. So they'll continue your thyroid medicine. Generally speaking, blood sugar, if you're going to, if you're so sick that you might die in the next six months, you probably may skip some meals here and there. So they tend to be looser with their blood sugar measurements because you might skip a meal and we don't want your blood sugar to drop too much. But by the same token, we want you to eat the ice cream because the ice cream is going to make you happy. And so we go, eh. So long as it's like under 300, you should be okay as far as your glucose is concerned. And the, and the concern with glucose being really high for a really long time is what happens to your kidneys and your heart after 15 years. But if your life expectancy is six months, it doesn't really, we're not going to have this effects in 15 years. So have the ice cream. It's okay. Um, they are required to have bereavement services. So Medicare says, hospice, you're dealing with people who are all very sick, they're all going to die. You must follow their families for at least a year after someone passes. You must check in on them. You must ask them, are you doing okay? You must have counseling services available for families. Sometimes when it's someone who was sick for a long time and, they, and, the, and the person is old and everything is kind of, th they have come to the end of their natural life after a good long life, families are okay. They say, well, you know, this is, dad had a really good life, he's come to the end of his life, we're okay. But sometimes that person on hospice is a 35-year-old woman with three small children. And they might have a hard time because mom is gone. And so it's very important for them to be around to provide those services, to make sure that those kids are doing okay, to make sure that the, the, this, this new single father has some support and someone to contact when, when things don't look right. And so Medicare and the, the federal guidelines require that hospice provide that bereavement service. One thing that hospice will do that everybody always tells you, they don't treat anything. They do treat things. If you have a urinary tract infection or if you develop like thrush or that kind of um, bacterial, uh, not, not a, it's a fungal infection in your mouth. Those, they will give you medications for all of this. It's uncomfortable to have these things happening. So they'll give you medicines for those things. What they won't do is give you IV medications because that's considered very aggressive. You don't want the IV, you don't want them to have to take you six times looking for a spot where they're gonna do the IV medicines. But if you can take antibiotics by mouth, they'll give you those. Um, if your blood pressure runs a little high, they'll probably be more permissive. <laughs> But if it's running high enough that we would worry about a stroke, they'll give you high blood pressure medicines because we don't want to cause harm. We just want you to live your life as fully as possible. Next. Okay, so how do you make sure these things go the way you want them to? Um, you know, we, we cover our house and our car and our families with insurance, but we don't cover ourselves with any sort of insurance policy to make sure that we have the care that we want. And so how do you do that? Um, talk with your family. It, it is extremely important for everyone in your family to know what you want, for them to know what's important to you. And they will say, I don't wanna talk about it because mom, you know, I, it's just, too, you're young, you're healthy. Let's talk about this next time. And unfortunately, we just never know what's underneath our skin. And so it's good to just make sure that everybody knows uh, my kids are, 16 and 13 and they know exactly what I want and yeah, they're a little young 
to know. But I also do this for a living, so. <laughs> but they know what I want. And I'm 45 and I'm perfectly fine and healthy and I don't have any medical problems. And I n you never know if something is just going to pop up. So have those conversations. Talk with your physician. Make sure that your physician knows what you want. Make sure that you have had those discussions, that if there is any questions, that they've answered them for you. Um, we have this new little problem called uh, Senate Bill 11. I think there's an attorney coming in a couple of weeks who can tell you about it. But basically, what the Texas um, legislature has done, they have basically said that your family has a right to overrule anything you say. Even if it's in writing, your family can just overrule stuff. It goes into effect in January. Anyway, because of that, it is even more important than ever before to make sure your family knows what you want. Because before, we could say, well, the living will says, so we shouldn't do stuff. But now the new law says, well, the living will, they didn't really mean it. So if your daughter from California that you only see once every 10 years comes into town and says she wants to do different stuff, she can. So make sure you talk with your family and that everybody knows what you want. Um, and then there's paperwork that you should fill out that you can put on the binder that I know the attorney will go over, but important things to have is a medical power of attorney. So a medical power of attorney can only make medical decisions for you. This is someone you pick. You say, this is who I want to make decisions for me. It does not have to be a loved one. It could be your pastor. It could be your neighbor. It doesn't matter. Somebody you trust, who you think will make the decisions for you that you want. This, is, this person can override that Senate Bill 11, by the way, because they're the ones that officially are making decisions. And so you want somebody you trust to make decisions for you. Um, a living will is basically that conversation, but in writing, where you're telling them, this is what I want, and this is what I don't want, and this is, these are your guidelines. And a lot of times, families will look at it and they'll say, well, we have a living will, so really, I'm not making the decision for what's going to happen with dad. I'm just honoring his wishes, and it's right here, and so I'm not making the decision. And that it's much easier for them, because it's not their decision. They're just putting a plan in action that was already decided for by you. Um, a durable power of attorney has nothing to do with me, but you want to do that while you're doing all your paperwork. Because if you don't have one, the attorney will be glad and kind enough to tell you that your entire assets will be frozen until after your will has gone through and they have done their thing sort of from the legislature side. And so if you have bills to pay or unless you have somebody else in your bank account, no one can access your bank account if you don't have a durable power of attorney. And so while you're doing everything else, do that too. But I, now I'm going beyond my scope of practice, so I'm gonna stop. <laughs> the next one, please. Uh, so who makes this decision? So let's just say that you plan ahead and you have a medical power of attorney, you're set. That's the person who's going to make decisions. But if something happens before you get around to doing that, who's gonna do it? So if you're, if you're married, your spouse will do it. That's the default person who gets to make decisions for you. You better know what your, you, you better as a spouse partnership, talk to each other and figure out, make sure that you know what each other wants. But that's who would do it if you don't have one. If you don't have a spouse, then your children get to make the decision. And it's generally the majority of your adult children. So if they are bickering with each other and they can't make decisions, then you kind of get to live in limbo until somebody makes a decision. And so if you have only one kid and your kid knows what you want, then you don't have to really worry about it as much other relatives, and sometimes we get in this terrible situation where there's no one, and there is no power of attorney, there is no guardian, there is no family members, and so then we actually call on a chaplain from the community, a, a pastor or something, who have, we have a relationship in the hospital and we make decisions, but now you're talking about someone who's a complete stranger to you, so we're not calling your pastor, we're calling a pastor from some church that's near the hospital that has an agreement with the hospital. So some person you have has never met you is going to make decisions on what would be good for you. So avoid that at all costs. Um, of course, we have this uh, information protection rules, the, the HIPAA Act, and we think is the Healthcare, Health Information Protection and Accountability Act or something like that. Basically, that says that we can't talk to just anybody. And so we can't just talk with 
your cousin Mildred who is just very interested in what's going on and calls on the phone randomly. We have to talk with the people who are designated to be making decisions. So that protects you from keeping your information private to some extent. Unless she says that she's your medical power attorney on the phone and she lies to you, but I mean, she lies to us, then we're sort of stuck. If Mildred's lying to us, we would, we would want to see the paper, but if Mildred says, oh, I'm his wife, <coughs> sometimes, you know, we can only do so much. Next. Um, so uh, because my dad loves driving so much, you know, there is this sort of natural course of life. We have all sorts of modes of transportation at some point in our lives. Um, but <coughs> as, as a necessity, dying is the outcome of living. That's just the way it is. Um, despite our me medical modern advancements in science moving forward, human mortality remains steady at 100%. We have not changed that. So, have to go with it. <laughs> so, I was, I was asked to talk about what dying is like. What, what does it look like? And sometimes, in retrospect, people who have a loved one on hospice who maybe is on hospice for just a couple of weeks, and we start talking about it, they go, oh yeah, he was doing that before. That was, that was kind of what that the last few months have been like, and we don't recognize these things. So, so I was asked to kind of go over that. So a few months before someone dies, people start kind of withdrawing from the world. They're not interested in going to the dinner party. They're not really interested in talking to other people. Eventually, they're only interested in talking to family members themselves um, because they're making this transition to a different place. And they're just not interested in our mundane day-to-day -day stuff. Um, they tend to do a life inventory. They tend to kind of relive their life and talk about things that are important to them and things that have been meaningful. Usually about family. Uh, as much as I love my job, I've been told multiple times that nobody ever says, I wish I had worked more when I was younger. We'll see. Um, they tend to sleep more. They tend to spend more time sleeping. So you notice that person, you know, they, they used to wake up and be awake all day and, and now they're taking an afternoon nap and now they're going to bed a little bit earlier and they're just slowly kind of shutting down. Um, and they, de their, their appetite decreases. <laughs> I missed that one. <laughs> Yeah, um, as you get older and you sleep more, you get, you know, closer to uh, the end, but <laughs> so long as you're, you know, maintaining an active life, it's okay to take a nap. <laughs> the problem is, is <laughs> <laughs> the problem is when it's two, three, four naps a day, or when, you know, you get up at noon and then you're back in bed by six, or, yeah, that, that thing is to be a problem. And appetite goes away. And you know that, that goes right back to that feeding tube. Your appetite starts to slow down. Even things that you really liked before, you don't want to eat them anymore. I am really dreading that day because I really love to eat. And I am not looking forward to saying, no, I don't want that. <laughs> so I'm not, not sure that's a good idea, but I guess we have to. Uh, a few weeks before, now you're sleeping most of the time. So now it's not just that, that nap in the afternoon that's kind of weird. Now it's, you might be awake two or three hours a day. You might get up and, and do something. Uh, sometimes we ask people, well, how is he doing at home? And they say, oh, well, he's, he, he gets up in the morning and he's up all day and then he goes to bed at night. And so then we, we dig a little bit more. It's like, well, he gets up to go to the recliner and he takes a nap on the recliner all day and then he goes back to bed. And it's like, well, he's kind of been sleeping all day just in bed and then the recliner and then in bed and the recliner. But he's still sleeping all day. So that is not a good sign when someone is spending all day, not, not watching TV, but on the recliner asleep all day. You're not really up, even though you're not in bed. Um, there's more confusion. A lot of times they will start seeing people who have gone before them. And I don't know if there is a scientific basis to it or if it's a spiritual thing, but they, it's not uncommon for people to say, my mom came to visit me last night. Mom's been dead for 60 years. Don't, she came to visit you last night, but she did. And that's okay. Um, there may be some physical changes. Blood pressure sometimes drops. 
So a lot of times the hospice medicine, the hospice doctor will say, we need to stop the blood pressure medicine. And it's not because they want to kill you, but because now your blood pressure is so low, you don't need the blood pressure medicine anymore. And maybe your temperature drops a little and it's, it's okay to let your own body regulate itself. Your skin may get a little bit cooler and clammier and thinner and that's sort of the normal processes. The breathing changes, sometimes people will take really long pauses in their breathing or it'll be a little irregular or it might look like they're gasping for air but they're not really gasping for air and I think it's, it's good to know that when people are very, very sick and they're close to dying and it looks like they're gasping for air and their they jaw, they jaw drops, they go like this when they breathe, it's not because they can't catch their breath, it's because they're so weak, these muscles can't keep their mouth shut anymore. And so when they take a breath and they expand their lungs, it just kind of pulls their jaw down. But they may be perfectly comfortable, it's just physics. Um, and these things can come and go. They could be, they could look like they are dying, like right now, and then tomorrow morning they're fine. And you're like going, but I thought you were, but it's okay, because it's a natural process and, and there may be hormones that are released by your body that kind of drive things up for a little bit and so you have a good day and then you have a bad day, but overall the, the, the bad days, the days where you're weaker and more tired are more frequent than the days that you have more energy and eventually most of the days you're just very tired. Um, next. And then a few days before someone dies, sometimes there's a rally. Sometimes your body says, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. I'm going to release all my adrenaline and I'm going to feel great today. And people have a rally and they're awake and alert and they're talking and they're, sometimes they eat their last meal because they're just feeling great. And when families don't know what's going on, they say, he's getting better. We don't need hospice anymore because it's great. And then the next day that rush of energy is over and the person is back again they were before so it's, it's good to know that this can happen. Um, if the things, uh, those, those signs, the breathing, the temperature, the blood pressure make it worse and not better. So it may get the, the blood pressure may drop really low, but it not, not bounce back again. And the breathing may become more spaced out. Sometimes people holding their breath up to 30, 45 seconds between breaths and it may just not get better um, because it's, things are really shutting down. Um, there may be some congestion. So a lot of times the mucus that we have, the, the saliva we have, we swallow it, we go through life, we don't notice. But when you're very sick and your body's not working right, instead of being able to swallow the saliva and it just goes away or phlegm from your lungs comes up and you swallow it. Yeah, I know, gross, but it happens. And it, you, you don't notice, it just happens all the time. But when someone is frail and they're in bed and they're requiring care to care for basically all of their functions, they can't swallow that. And so it just kind of gets stuck in the back of their throat and it sounds like they're gurgling and they have more phlegm. We have medications to make that better, but that may get worse the last few days of life. Um, and people may start getting some blutchy looking feeling to their fingers and their toes, maybe bluish coloration to their nails, sometimes purple colors that kind of go up your hands or your legs. And those are just signs that the circulation is shutting down. Your body is trying its hardest to keep your heart and your lungs and your kidneys and your brain with blood flow and your fingers are really expendable so it starts pulling blood from your fingers and your toes um, at that point is just trying to maintain the vital organs going. But that's not uncommon to see. Um, and eventually, at some point, the breathing will stop. And they just, you know, they, they will have one of those pauses that was 45, 60 seconds long and they just don't have the next one. And their soul goes. But I can tell you from having seen this a ton of times, people die when they want to die. People who die of medical causes die when they want to die. If you get run by a Mack truck, that's a different story altogether. But if you have a medical problem, you will wait for family if you want to wait for them, even if they're out of town. You will hold on to that breath, one breath every minute <laughs> for days on end because you're waiting for your son to get into town. 
or you're waiting to have your dog come visit you in the hospital, or you want to be home and so you will wait until your family finally takes you home because that's what you want, or you will wait for a date, or you will wait for your family to not be in the room. Everybody always says, well, we don't want him to die alone, so we're gonna be with him 24-7, and we're gonna hover over him. And then the moment everybody goes out to lunch or whatever, or something happens and they're all in the kitchen, the patient goes, oh my God, I'm alone, I'm gone. And they die, that, those two seconds they're alone, that's when they die, because that's what they wanted. They wanted to be alone. So people die when they want to die. We have no control over it. I, I am convinced that people who are that sick are negotiating with God and they're looking for a better place at the table or they're waiting for something, but I have no control over it. I can guarantee you. Um, maybe in some places we can do this physician-assisted suicide thing, but I don't know that I could ever participate in it. We certainly don't do that in Texas, and people just call their own shots. Um, my, what I always tell people is when someone's on hospice, it, we basically have put that person in the driver's seat because I love car analogies. Great. Um, now that person's driving, and family members are stuck in the back seat of the car. You just have to enjoy the ride because that's the only thing you can do. And this person who's driving won't tell you where they're going and they won't tell you how long the ride is. So you're sitting in the back seat, are we there yet? <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, how much longer? You'll see. Where are we going? A surprise. You're just, might as well make, make nice with the people in the back seat of that car with you because you're stuck and you're not going anywhere. And the, the role of hospice in that setting is to smooth out the road as much as possible, to try to make sure there's no bumps and that the turns are nice and smooth. And sometimes they can't get rid of all the potholes, especially in Houston, but they try to make it smooth. And then that person who's driving gets to decide when to exit. And they exit when they want to. And sometimes they are going to exit and then they go right back on the road. And, you're just gonna and it's really hard because you don't know. And you're stuck there, and you're and you want, you don't want the person to die, but you want this to be over because it hurts so much to want someone to watch someone who's dying. But you're stuck in this place where you don't know what's happening, and and it's just awful. But it's a process, and we just have to let it do its own thing. Next. So enjoy life to the fullest because it has an expiration date. Uh, people who do what I do for a living. We tend to get always asked, how do we deal with this? It's so sad and depressing and everybody's so sick. And in reality, we are crazy because we know that life has an expiration date. And so we tend to enjoy life more fully every day. I have dessert almost every night. <laughs> it might be my last one. <laughs> Don't know. And then I get on the treadmill to get uh, to make sure that I burn the calories of the dessert. But I still have dessert every night, because you never know. I think that's it. Yeah, any questions, comments? Yeah. I was going to repeat the question, but now she's getting a microphone, so it's even better. Okay. Um, how do I choose? I don't know how to choose who that person would be to have this information. You know, um, a few years back when I made my first will, I was real sick at that time, and I was so scared that, you know, all my wishes and my children being taken care of. Now I'm stuck of trying to figure out, okay, who do I choose to make sure has this information, because what happens if that person passes before me? Then what do I do? Well, hopefully, if the person passes before you, you'll have some warning, and you won't like die together <laughs> in a car or something. <laughs> so hopefully, you, you will know that that person passed. But choose someone who is otherwise healthy. You know, picking 95-year-old grandma may not be a good choice because she's likely to go before you. But someone in your age range, maybe a little older, a little younger, someone you'd really trust. And it doesn't have to be a family member, it just has to be someone who will honor your wishes. And, and it depends on 
No, you're talking about a will, living will versus the last will and testament are different. But sometimes you want different people doing different things. I have a friend I, from college that I love. She's amazing and she manages retirement funds for a living. She's supposed to manage my estate if I die and my kids are still young. Not my mom, not my sisters, not my sister-in-law because I don't trust them with the money. <laughs> my friend from college, she can manage the money. Um, so she would be my durable power of attorney. She would be the person I would want to make those decisions. My medical de decision maker is somebody else completely. Well, my husband won't let me pick somebody else, but if I could pick somebody else. <laughs> let, let, let me. He got offended when I suggested that he might not do what I say. Let me, let me throw in a little analogy that might help with this a little bit. Uh, whenever you have small children, one of the things that's real important to think about, if something happened to me, who's going to take care of my kids? If I don't decide that, the state's going to decide that, you know, or somebody's going to fight over that. So I want to, so when I think about that, I think about who would take the care of them in a way that I would want them taken care of. So if you apply that same thinking to your, to your body and to your medical care, who would attend to my care in the way that I would, that I would, that would have a, a common mind that through a conversation I had with them, like she said, like I trust them and I have respect for them and, and, and uh, uh, if, if, you could, if you could think of that analogy, I think that might help you sort it through. Right, and it doesn't have to be a family member. Yeah, Even if... And I think you might have to look for a friend yeah. who you trust. I often have thought that as a general rule of thumb, if I was not able to make a decision for myself and the medical opinion was that I would not be able to make a decision for myself because I, I wouldn't become lucid again, that would be the time to enter hospice, palliative, make myself comfortable and just let it go. What doesn't that rule of thumb cover? So you usually have to be very, very sick to not be able to make decisions for yourself anymore. So if you have an acute illness, you're, you're doing fine and suddenly something happens, you have a stroke or a heart attack or something and you can't make decisions for yourself, Sometimes, in sort of the, the, the heat of the situation, we will do things that may not make sense because we're trying to figure out what's happening. But once we've gotten to that place where we're thinking, okay, this is not going to get better, and now he has a tube in his throat, and we have to make a decision, do we do the surgery to put the tube here and the surgery to put the tube here? If your family doesn't know what you want, that's when they start saying, well, maybe he would want to hang around longer. If your family knows that you would not want to have further aggressive medical treatment if you are in a place where you can't make decisions for yourself, and you have told them that. If I can't make decisions, I don't want you to prolong my life, that should cover you. The, the, the problem is, is when your family doesn't know what you would want. Generally speaking, we would be able to say you can't make decisions for yourself. Sometimes if people have like advanced cancer, the, the oncologist keeps recommending treatment because he thinks you want treatment and you keep accepting treatment because you think the oncologist wants you to keep getting the treatment and you never talk to each other. And then at some point I get involved and I'm like, well, the oncologist says it's not helping and you don't want it. Why are, you, why are we still doing this? Like, because we never talk to each other. <laughs> and so having those conversations with treating physicians, if you're able to, are good. Yeah. 
So a, a clarifying question about hospice care, mm -hmm. um, because I don't really understand it. Um, well, that's one, why I'm here. <laughs> that's right. Um, one of the things that I have always heard was that when you're in so much pain, they can give you morphine to help ease the pain factor. Right. Um, if you can you do IVs for that, or does it have to be only via oral medication? So most of the time, because you are home and your family is taking care of you, they're not going to do IVs at home because if something happens, you're going to bleed everywhere, it's bad. Sometimes when you're so very sick that you're on hospice, your veins are very small and you're a little dehydrated, and so it's really hard to get a needle. But Hospice works usually with compounding pharmacies that can get morphine, for example, in a high concentration liquid. They can get it in a suppository. They can get it in a cream that they can rub on your skin. They can, you can get a patch, so if needed, they can do that. And if all else fails, hospice does have access to IV medications, and they can do that. But because it's uncomfortable to get stuck, that's usually their medication of last resort, but they will use it if needed. Mm -hmm. No problem. Could you expound a little bit on the Texas uh, State Bill 11 in regards to, did I hear you say that the, the family or the power of attorney could object and uh, the hospital or the physicians would be free to follow their wishes? So at the risk of uh, practicing outside my scope, and the attorney will be here. Um, so the, 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 the bill basically was kind of come about because sometimes the doctor would decide this patient is so very sick, CPR would not just not be helpful, but it would be harmful. And we're not supposed to be causing harm, so we're not going to do this. And so the doctor would decide this patient would not benefit from CPR and they would change the code status and they would say, we're not going to do this. And some families got very upset about that. And so they went to court and the whole nine yards. And so it basically, one of the things it does is it prohibits us from making someone DNR when the patient is not aware of it, when the family is not aware of it, which is good. We should always talk to people and have that conversation. But the problem is, is that it goes a step further by saying that this is, uh, this is kind of supported by the um, Texas Pro-Life Coalition, which is great in sort of the early beginnings of life side, not so great at the end of life side. Because what they're saying is, is all life is life, and we should pursue it regardless. And so they're basically saying, if anybody involved in the situation wants to prolong life, that should be what we do. And so if you have a, I'm not offending anybody, crazy oncologist who thinks that we're just going to give you one more round of chemo and you will miraculously get better, and he doesn't want you to be DNR, but the doctor can say, well, I think they would benefit from CPR, so we're not going to do DNR, even though it's against your wishes. And if you have a family member who says, well, I know she said that on her living will, but she didn't really mean it, they can override that. Up until now, we, we could, s in the hospital, say, look, this is what her living will says. We have to honor her wishes. This is what we have to do. And sometimes families would still override, but it wasn't as common. But as of January, the family is going to basically be able to do whatever they want. Uh, and I think the attorney will be able to explain that better, but um, it's going to be an issue. Unless you have durable, I mean, uh, medical power. So, so, well, so if you have medical power attorney, that, that medical power attorney gets to the side, which is why it's so important to have that one person you trust, who knows what you want, <laughs> so that when your strange daughter comes back from out of town, she can say, well, but you don't have the right to make decisions because she assigned me to make decisions. So. It's clear as mud. No, there's no question. If I understood it correctly, it's either way if the family on the SP11 decides to prolong life or not, they can go against the directives of the Hospital person, is that correct? Either way? Yeah, pretty much your family always gets to call the shots. Okay. okay. 
There, there might be a, a situation in the hospital where your family wants to keep prolonging life and everybody in the hospital is having major emotional distress from watching you suffer with futile treatment, then they might invoke other laws. But generally speaking, your family gets to call the shots. Have we run out of questions? Y'all seem to be slowing down and you're making me speed up. So. <laughs> Okay, um, in just a minute I'm going to ask Marty to come up to dismiss us, but first I want to give you an opportunity to say thanks for Dr. Eastman. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wish I could do this more often because it's so important. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Uh, next, next week, uh, um, Marty is going to be leading us, and he has invited a guest uh, who uh, uh, who works in the funeral business, and the two, the, the two of them are going to lead us through things that we need to think about in relation to um, to our own funerals. Don't know a better way to say it than that. Okay, so I have yours planned. <laughs> So I have yours planned, and you've gave me power of attorney. Pull the plug. So it's a good deal. Two for one. If you'll stand, please. And hold hands with the people who are near you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening. We give you thanks for those who have come and to learn, because Father, as Richard says, this is part of being a good disciple, taking care of our business so that our families will find peace and comfort. We give you thanks for Richard and his leadership as he puts this together. We thank you for Anna and for her willingness to come and for Gary um, for, for finding her and, and dragging her here. We are so thankful. So we ask now, Father, that you dismiss us with your blessings, give us your grace, fill us with your peace, and we'll be so faithful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. For it's in your Son's name we gather, and in his holy name we pray. Amen.